0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 5, 1. Seeing the crowds he went up on the mountain and when he sat down his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, like I mentioned, we we began a new sermon series last week, uh, Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. It's basically what Jesus begins. He inaugurates his earthly ministry here, he, he was baptized, he was led in the wilderness for 40 days, tempted by Satan, and then here he, he accumulates some of his disciples, goes up to a hillside, and starts teaching, and, and one of the major things as you read Matthew's gospel is Matthew's very concerned with presenting to us this concept of the kingdom of heaven. He's not made any mistakes here in showing us the royal lineage of Jesus, the line of David, of Abraham going way back to his ancestors, and showing that Jesus has this sort of royal lineage that he's part of and as Jesus is going around and preaching about the kingdom of heaven, he's dis- displaying miracles, showing people what the kingdom of heaven looks like when it breaks through this ordinary world and so it's, it, Matthew is, is making uh, every effort to show us that the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is setting up the new kingdom of heaven here on earth and the Sermon on the Mount is basically a manifesto for what the kingdom is like. Now here in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is revealing to these people on the mountainside the kingdom dynamics in sort of an immediate context here. Dallas Willard says this, he says, the Sermon on the Mount is a concise statement of Jesus' teaching on how to actually live in the reality of God's present kingdom available to us from the very space surrounding our bodies. So Jesus here, he's got Jews and Gentiles here on this mountainside, people are drawn to him, there's something attractive about Jesus, and they are here to catch a glimpse of. They're there to hear Jesus speak about this kingdom dynamics, the immediate reality of the kingdom of God, of being fully alive to God right now. And so we see in verse one, the crowds. It says, seeing the crowds, he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Now you might think that this is just sort of like a setup to what's about to come—the important stuff in the Sermon on the Mount—and and and yes, it is a setup. But here, this action of Jesus going up a mountainside, taking a seat, is actually a very significant gesture, and and is. His original audience, the people who were there on the mountainside, would grasp sort of the significance of this, okay? So, so th- what we've been talking about last week, we set this up. There's basically two types of people that Jesus is ministering to here. There's the Jewish people, the folks who have had this heritage uh, of the wisdom literature, of these prophecies, of this kingdom, of, of what it looks like to, to live a wise life, uh, awake to God, and to live uh, with the grain of God's creation. And then you have these Greek folks who, uh, the Greeks were really responsible for philosophy, um, this idea of, of what is the good life, what is virtue, how can we be satisfied, how do we find a happy life, and so Jesus is here at the intersection of these two um, cultural narratives, and he's speaking to them, and, and when they hear him talking on this mountainside, uh, the Jewish people are seeing some connections of the Old Testament here. There's a lot of what we've seen, especially in Matthew's Gospel, leading up to this point, that have mosaic overtones. Okay, so the idea that Jesus was out in the wilderness uh, ties back to Israel, wandering. He was there for 40 days, Israel was in the wilderness for 40 years. We see Jesus being called out of the out of the wilderness, making it through the temptation, and here Jesus is going up the mountainside, just like Moses did, to receive uh, the Ten Commandments there on Mount Sinai. So Jesus here is 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 giving um, what it seems like a new code for life, a new uh, rules for engagement, a new way to live that's in line with God's creation. And at the same time, the Greeks knew like when it, whenever there was a god, a, a god the mountaintops were a place of revelation, okay? The, the mountaintops are where worship happened. It's where philosophizers were, would bring their disciples, would bring their students, and they would teach from this mountainside. So you get these two different groups of people who have some significance here about what, what it means to be up on a mountainside, and Jesus is sort of fulfilling that. So people are sitting there before Jesus, and they're thinking something important is about to happen. Something revolutionary is underway. Now what we're gonna see here in the Sermon on the Mount that there absolutely is something revolutionary here. What Jesus is presenting and his teaching, it's something completely different, not not completely different, but it's it's in stark contrast to the culture that the Jewish people found themselves in and and the Greco-Roman people. But what's interesting here, it's not just the revolutionary teaching of Jesus that's happening, there's actually a transformation that's happening within the people themselves. See, Matthew begins chapter five by, by using, he, he's talking about a group of people, and in the first sense, he talks about them as crowds. There's these crowds, there's this mass of people, but then what happens is, they, they, they are no longer called the crowds, but as they come to Jesus, they're called his disciples. You see it there in verse one. seeing the crowds, he went up the mountain, and we sat down, his disciples came to him. So there's this transformation that's happening within the very people who are listening to Jesus speak. And what this points to is the reality that Jesus, Jesus isn't chasing fans, right? Jesus isn't interested in in chasing likes like we might do on social media, right? We post something and we're hoping a bunch of people are gonna interact with it in a way like, oh, cool, thumbs up, I like that, that's great. Jesus is interested in finding people who will follow him, who will listen to what he has to say and follow in his footsteps. Jesus doesn't want fans who are, Cheering from a distance he wants followers who are so close that they can get the the dust getting kicked up from his feet. These are the people who draw near to Jesus see to be a follower of jesus there's you, You've got to come to him. And when you come to him, Jesus radically reorients your life, your whole life. Not just what you do on Sunday mornings or what you do at a midweek churchy gathering. He changes all of your life and it becomes revolutionized around Jesus himself and his message about this kingdom. And so this is what Jesus is after. He's after disciples, kingdom apprentices, people who follow in his ways. Now, I can imagine what it, what it would be like on on that side of the mountain. People, you know, there's this buzz that's surrounding Jesus. They've seen the miracles. They've seen him teaching. They're intrigued. There's something captivating about Jesus. And, and I remember my freshman year of college, I uh, I auditioned for an all-star college band, like jazz band, um, back in my trombone playing days. And for somehow I got selected as first chair. And, and one of the things that was super cool about this was we get to, this all star band was going to play at, at this international jazz conference at New York City. So um, it was pretty exciting. I was pumped about it. But the kicker of the whole deal was the featured guest artist who was going to play with this big band. Uh, his name was Wycliffe Gordon, who's basically my trombone playing hero. This guy was legit. He, he played with Wynton Marcellus at the Lincoln Center Jazz Orchestra. And so to have the opportunity to even play in this, you know, one-time big band and have one of my idols there with, with us was awesome. And so here we flew out to, to uh, New York a, a couple days early to have all these rehearsals and get ready um, to, so that when he would come in, the band would actually sound good. And so there was this buzz in these rehearsals about, okay, this guy, like he, he's like a jazz giant of our day, okay? People are going to look back and like Duke Ellington, Count Basie, like we're going to look back and see Wycliffe Gordon alongside of Wynton Marcellus and some of these greats right now. And so there's this buzz in our rehearsal room, this excitement, like can you believe what's about to happen? can you see, like th- this is so cool. And so there was this excitement, this buzz that was going on in the rehearsals, but as soon as Whitecliff Gordon walked into the room, hush. Like nobody wanted to miss a single thing that he was going to say. He wanted, nobody wanted to miss one critique, one, uh, one suggestion, one kind of uh, helpful tip, not one joke. Everybody was locked on to what this guy was going to say because he had, in our eyes, he had sort of reached the, the top. He had something to offer. And so when I think of Jesus on the mountainside, this is sort of what I envision right, globs of people, this excitement that's just boiling in, but, but when he opens his mouth to speak in verse two, it's just hush. Everybody's all ears. They don't want to miss a single thing. Now, I, I imagine that on the hillside, right, people excited, people just, just chomping at the bit to hear what Jesus has to say, but I don't necessarily think that's our posture when Jesus speaks today. I don't. I wish it were, but I don't think that's our posture because I think that for many of us, Jesus is just another voice in the crowd, right? He's just another voice ab- among the myriad of voices who are, who are trumpeting what it looks like to live the good life, what, what things should be like. So he's just another voice alongside of Fox News and CNN. He's, he's another voice that's, that's shouting from the mountaintops like Ben Shapiro or Bill Maurer. And what happens is we get so swept up in all of these voices, all of the voices in media, on social media, all of the stuff, all of the noise, and we get wrapped up in it ourselves. We're we're actually not listening at all. We're just shouting at each other. We're, We're like trying to argue, fighting for our ideas, fighting for our concepts, and so it's so noisy. We live in a noisy world right now. I don't know if you realize that. This is a very noisy world and the volume is cranked, and sometimes you just find yourself in an echo chamber. And when this is the case, we miss out, people. We miss out on the one voice of sanity. We miss out on the one voice of reason and wisdom and joy. And right now, Jesus is speaking just as he did 2,000 years ago on this hillside. He hasn't stopped speaking. He's just changed locations, and he's kind of passed the torch to the church. The message is still the same. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is still advancing. The kingdom of heaven is far more glorious than you can dare to imagine. And so if you're tired of whatever kingdom this is, if you're fed up with it, Jesus is extending an invitation today. Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven doesn't just exist it's available, and it's not just available when you die. Like, push your way through this world, and then on the other side of the grave, there's this kingdom that opens up, where he's saying that there's a kingdom of heaven that is so near, it's closer than your next breath. Jonathan Pennington, he's a scholar who we'll be coming back to time and time again in this sermon series. He says that Jesus is offering and inviting his hearers into the way of being in the world that will result in their true and full flourishing now, right now, and in the age to come. See, this is what Jesus is offering here. He, he's offering an invitation. You could, when you look at these beatitudes, that's where what, what this chunk of scripture that we're in right now, where we see the blessed are the blessed are the blessed, it's, it's called the beatitudes. In these beatitudes, Jesus is essentially extending an invitation to the kingdom of heaven. Now, one of the mistakes that we tend to make when we come to the Beatitudes is this is some sort of a checklist that in order to be a, a, a candidate for this, in order to kind of get in, punch my ticket, I've got to knock out all one of these first. But I, that, that's, not, that's not what Jesus is promoting here. He, it's not some sort of legalistic, check the boxes sort of thing. Jesus is saying the kingdom is available for this kind of people. He says it, it's available for the poor in spirit, for the meek, for those who are mourning. Now, when you think about it, this is so backwards. It's so upside down to what our world values. If Jesus is saying the kingdom of, of heaven is open for the poor in spirit, the meek, uh, those who are mourning, the world has a very different sort of entry invitation. I love this. Uh, Pastor Ray Ortland. He, a couple years ago, he posted this thing called the unbeatitudes. This is sort of the kingdom values according to the world, according to the culture that we live in. This is what he says. He says, congratulations to the entitled, for they will grab what they want. Congratulations to the carefree, for they shall be comfortable. Congratulations to the pushy, for they shall win. Congratulations to the greedy, for they shall climb the food chain. Congratulations to the vengeful, for they shall be feared. Congratulations to those who don't get caught, for they shall look good. Congratulations to the argumentative, for they shall get in the last word. Congratulations to the popular, for this world lies at their feet. See, what a difference. What a difference how how contrasted the kingdom of heaven is to the kingdom of this world. See, Jesus is telling us here in in the Beatitudes, this invitation, he's not after the winners. He's not after the people that that our culture, our world props up and says, these guys are are the real G's. But Jesus is after the losers. Jesus is after, verse three tells us, the poor in spirit. Now, what does this mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? Now, another mistake people make, there's a lot of mistakes when we come to the Sermon on the Mount here that we tend to make. When we hear poor in spirit, we associate it with some sort of financial status. Okay, we, oh, blessed are the poor. Well, that's, that's not exactly what Jesus says. He saying the poor in spirit. So it's not really connected to a financial status. So your financial status can help you lead to the reality of your poor in spirit nature, nor is he speaking of some sort of character or personality, like poor in spirit being like, you're just sort of a deadbeat, right? He's not saying, you know, blessed are the people who just have a, personality of cardboard, right? That's not what he's saying. Jesus is saying here, blessed are the poor spirit. Now, okay, to really wrap our mind around this, we have to realize that every single person, every single human being is a spiritual being. We're multifaceted creatures, all right? We've got a physical body, right? We can wrap our minds around this. We've got a brain that somehow works, like there's a mental aspect, but we also have this spiritual side. Every human being was created with this. When God breathed his life into mankind, that is what made us spiritual beings. And so it's not something that, you know, we don't become a spiritual being when we start attending church or we start reading our Bible. We are a spiritual being. The question is, are you a thriving spiritual being? Are you flourishing or are you depleted? Are you running on empty? Now, to be spiritually poor means that part of your humanity, part of the thing that makes you who you are is incomplete. That there's part of you that's lacking. Dallas Willard describes it as being a spiritual zero, spiritually bankrupt, we're deprived and deficient, we're spiritual beggars without a wisp of religion. See these, the spiritual poor are people who have failed God, that have not lived up to his standards, who have not engaged with him, that have that deep connected uh, relationship that we were meant to have, that we've sort of been severed and we have nothing to offer him. This is what it means to be spiritually poor. Now, there's been a tendency within the church to sort of sugarcoat this, right? You, you can see this in some of the translations of, of our Bibles. Instead of saying, like, the poor in spirit, there's this shift that says, blessed are the humble, right? It wants to sort of put a sugarcoat around it and downplay this sort of rad, ragtag imagery that Jesus presents to be poor in spirit, right? You think of a poor person, dirty, ratty clothes, sort of crippled over, downcast, right? That, that's what Jesus is trying to present us as. It's, he's trying to hold up a mirror, And so instead of acknowledging the reality, that ragtag imagery, we try to spruce up Jesus' words so that it's more palatable, so it's more flattering for us. And the reason why this is is because we are so ingrained into what our culture values, right? It's like we just kind of take some of what the culture has to offer and we superimpose it over what Christianity, what Jesus has to say. See, our culture values autonomy. Our culture wants to tell us, you need to be self-sufficient, right? Make yourself, pull yourself up. by the so, so we hate weakness, we hate the feeling of being incapable, of lacking something in ourselves, and so we try to put ourselves together and we learn to be self-reliant and self-sufficient, sort of stubborn in our own abilities. And I think that there's a secular way to do this, like there's a non-churchy way to do this, and then there's a churchy way to do this, to sort of suggest that there's something in us that can actually do what we, we ought to do as far as being spiritually, uh, being a spiritual being. I think one of the things here, when we look at the secular thing, people, secular people tend to choose indifference about this, that they'd be in, indifferent towards the spiritual reality, sort of sweep it under the rug, ignore that part of their humanity, right? Some people come out strong, right? There, there's some philosophize, there's some people who say, you know, I, I don't need God, God is just a construct of man because we're, we're just weak people, right? And so, so we're feeble-minded and so we create this version of God and so they, they reject it strongly or other people have this sense of man, I, I'm actually, I'm so spiritually depleted Like, my spiritual poverty is so severe, there's no way God wants anything to do with me. And so those people sort of push God away, like, like, that just makes me feel bad, right? Or or I think it's stupid. And so they sweep the spiritual aspect of our humanity under the rug, and in doing so, they live this impaired life. It's it's like being, if we were three-legged stools, like, uh, our physical being, our mental being, our spiritual being, Right, we take one of those stools, legs of the stool, away, and it tips over. It's an impaired way of living. But there's a spiritual, there's there's a religious way. I should say it like that. There's a religious way to sort of combat this feeling of inadequacy as well. It's where we hide behind the delusion of our own religious accomplishment. It's where we resort to sort of self help mentality, and we try to prove that we're not bad. We heap up our good works. And we sort of present ourselves in a way that, that suggests that I can bring something to the table that God actually really wants me because I can do something for him. And when we take on this mentality and we think about, okay, this is what I can do, we get prideful and we tend to look down on other people who are, exposed, are, are expressing some of their own spiritual poverty, right, when they sin. When when they don't treat others kindly or they do something that's out of line with the gospel, we we get prideful and look down on them. And actually if you go to the book of Revelation chapter three, one of the things that that John, or actually Jesus is speaking to through the apostle John is this problem at Laodicea where he says, well shoot, I I gotta pull it up here. I lost it. Revelation chapter three. I have all these little quick notes in my Thing. I'm living life on the edge today because I forgot to charge my iPad last night. And so you never know. This thing could go down and we'd be in for an interesting thing. But, but, but Revelation chapter 3, 17. He says, Jesus saying, For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, this is what happens. This is what religion does. False religion says like, well, I've I've bolstered myself up. It looks like I've got something to offer back to God, and so we have this mentality, and really what it is, is that we're just in denial about our true self. That we've we've constructed a, a false self that pushes against the reality of our spiritual poverty, but here is the glorious invitation of Jesus. Here's what Jesus offers us. He's offering us to wake up to the reality of our true self. He's saying you can stop pretending. You can stop ignoring. You can wake up to the reality that that in yourself, you are spiritually poor. Now, this isn't something that we have to strive for. Like, Jesus isn't saying, here's the benchmark of, of what you should really strive to be. The reality is, without Jesus, that's just what we are. We're spiritually bankrupt. And every attempt to prove otherwise only proves the point that Jesus is making is that we're spiritually poor already. So here's the invitation that we can stop pretending. We we can come to grips with the natural state of our own hearts. Now, you might be wondering, like when we read this, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You're wondering, if this is what it means to be poor in spirit, right? To, To have this sort of, self-emptying posture, right, to, to, to acknowledge that there's, there's actually nothing that great about me, that, that I'm deficient. How in the world is this the blessed life, right? How is this blessed? Like, this doesn't sound like hashtag blessed, right? You see that on, on, on social media, right? Oh, I got all this stuff, and it's like, I'm blessed. Like, that doesn't sound like like the blessed life. It seems futile. It seems empty. It seems really sad, actually, by itself, but Jesus isn't saying that if you're poor in spirit, that being poor in spirit itself will be rewarded, right, that's not what he's saying, he's saying that our awareness of our poverty opens us up, it makes us aware of this other root, of this other, this, the way of blessing, now, we, we got to deal with this word, because the next several weeks, we'll The verse starts with blessed is, blessed are the, blessed are the. We need to to do some of this work with the word blessed because this is a word um, that's translated in the Greek. Makarios is is the Greek word. And, And it does mean blessing, but it carries a different sort of connotation than how we typically think of blessed. Okay, so like we think of like kids are a blessing from the Lord. We think of like, you know, a husband blesses his wife with a bouquet of flowers. Right? We, we, we look at something like that, and that is a, a blessing in itself. Now that's true, that there is some sort of element of this, that there is, there is a reward, there is a blessing, there is a divine gift that's being communicated or offered through this. But that's not the entirety of its meaning. Uh, what, what it's really getting after here is blessed is a way of living. Blessed is living with the grain in a way where things open up for you, where, where life flourishes. Now, this is why some translations say happy. They, they don't use the word blessed. They say happy are the poor in spirit. Now, that word doesn't really work. It's not comprehensive. It doesn't give its full meaning here, but, but the best translation that we can really grab onto here is when we look at this, are flourishing, are the poor in spirit. Or, or think of it this way, like you're in an optimized state of being when your life is lived this way, with the grain of life. Okay, so, so Jesus is saying, like here's the way, Here, here's, here's the way that's going to lead to the good life, which again is what, when we look at the, the Jewish audience who are concerned with wisdom literature, um, and the Greeks who are concerned with philosophy of how to find the good life, Jesus is at the intersection of both of them and he's saying, here is the good life, blessed, here's the way. Flourishing are the poor in spirit. He's painting a picture of what God-centered human flourishing looks like. God-centered human flourishing. That, that's the target here. Now, this is a, a new concept for, for many of us. It's a new concept for that first century audience because what they thought of before is that human flourishing is man-centered. Like when I'm at the center of my life, then things go well for me. But Jesus is actually saying the inverse, that when you can remove yourself from the center, when you put God in the center, that opens your life up for flourishing because you have become dependent upon God. See, this is, this is how we lay access to the good life. This is, this is how we find the way to flourishing where God is at the center. And when you realize your spiritual poverty, you realize your neediness, your emptiness, your brokenness, you, you joyfully remove yourself from the center of your world and you place Jesus there. You finally have become willing to receive. you become willing to be dependent upon Jesus. You're looking beyond yourself and when you do so, you find that the kingdom of heaven is near. See, all we gotta do is look up from ourselves and there Jesus is. Because Jesus, what he's doing here, he's opening the kingdom for undeserving people. Now the spiritually poor, what what should the reward be for spiritual poorness? Like bankruptcy, like th- th- there's no benefit, right? You're, you're in the hole, you're negative. But here Jesus opens up the kingdom of heaven for people who don't deserve it all and says you actually can have all the kingdom. The kingdom is theirs. Undeserving people suddenly gain access to the kingdom. Martin Martyn Jones says there is no one in the kingdom of God that is not poor in spirit. It is the fundamental characteristic of the Christian and of the citizens of the kingdom of heaven and all the other characteristics that we'll see here in the Beatitudes are in a sense the result of this one. So Jesus is like, if you can see yourself for how you really are, you finally become receptive. You, you finally realize your need. Now, Jesus doesn't just say, like point the finger and say this is the way that you are, right? Jesus actually, in some way, in his humanities, because we talk about Jesus is fully God and fully man. So in one sense, in being fully God, Jesus cannot be poor spiritually poor. But in his humanity side, Jesus knew what it was like to be dependent, to empty himself, and we see this even when Jesus is being tempted in Matthew chapter four. When when Satan takes takes him up, he says, you know, like turn these stones into bread. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days, 40 nights. He's a hungry dude. And and Satan is saying, hey, you can be be autonomous. You can be self-reliant. Why why don't you just do this yourself? And Jesus said, no, not today, Satan. He says, man does not live on bread alone. Man does not live on what he can do for himself, but on the word of God. And so Jesus shows us what it looks like to be dependent upon God's word. And then we see later on in Matthew's gospel how Jesus retreats to prayer, that he has to have this connection with the Father no matter what season of life he's in. And so he shows us what it looks like to live this life, to live this life where we're we're calling out to God, where we realize that there's something inside of us that's lacking, and God can supply what we need. Now, this again is so contrary to, to the way our culture is, and, and I, I, there's this um, hymn that, that is an old hymn, but, but it's been redone, and we've sang it here a couple times. Um, it's called, Come Ye Sinners, Poor and Wretched. I just love it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna read you like three of the five verses here because it's such an invitation. This is what we see here Jesus saying in verse three. He says, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched, weak and wounded, sick and sore, Jesus ready stands to save you, full of Pity joined with power. He is able, he is able. He is willing, doubt no more. Verse three says, come ye weary, heavy laden, bruised and broken by the fall. It's like your own human flesh here is depleted. If you tarry, if you keep striving until you're better, you're never gonna come at all. See, some of us are waiting to get our lives together before we come to Jesus. If that's the case, you're gonna miss out. Because there's never a condition that makes you ready to step into Jesus. So he says, not the righteous, not the righteous. Sinners, Jesus came to call, right? So where you are right now, today, Jesus is calling you in verse four, I love this. Let not conscience make you linger, nor a fitness fondly dream, right? That that vision of what you'll be in five years, 10 years, when you finally get your spiritual life together, He says, all the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. This he gives you, this he gives you, tis the spirit's rising beam. See, Jesus is giving and giving and giving and all we have to do is realize our neediness. See, in our emptiness we can finally see that it's Jesus and Jesus alone who can fulfill what's lacking within us, that he gives and he gives and he gives. It's only in the emptiness of spiritual poverty can we receive the fullness of true riches. See, this is is what happens in the gospel. There's this glorious putting down and a glorious Elevation. There's this humility and exaltation that happens in the gospel of the Lord where we see that I am insufficient in myself. It kind of drives me to the dust, but as soon as I get to the point where I see myself accurately, Jesus steps in and he says, let me lift you up. Let me deliver you. Let me lift up the downcast. See, our, our utter nothingness is met by the utter fullness of Jesus. Now in Ephesians chapter three, Paul speaks about this fullness, the riches of Jesus, because here's what happens when, when you are spiritually poor and, and you meet Jesus, when you come to Jesus, you don't stay spiritually poor. Now in yourself you're spiritually poor, but Jesus now is inside of you. The Holy Spirit takes occupancy, so, so the, the, the person, the third member of the Trinity is inside of you, and what Paul points to in Ephesians chapter three is the ultimate fullness, the ultimate riches that we have in Jesus. He says how unsearchable are the riches. It's like if, it were, if the riches of God were a bottomless pit, we could spend our life digging deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper and never come to the bottom of how deep the riches are. It's this bottomless pit of spiritual wealth. Like it's, if you're like, uh, what's his name? Jeff Bezos or the, the dude who owns Am- Amazon. It's like, you don't think about money. You got billions of dollars. You've got this, it feels like this unlimited wealth available at your fingertips, and that's what we have with Jesus. And so we are now filled with the fullness of God. That's language that Paul uses there in chapter three of Ephesians. And so Jesus takes us poor and depleted people and he makes us filthy rich. Right now, Christian, you are filthy rich if your faith is in Jesus. There is this reality of your in yourself, you're depleted but your depletion is met by the fullness of God so that in Christ we aren't impoverished, we don't live this impaired life. See, we, we have the, the relationship, that spiritual relationship with Jesus, with God the Father that, that we were meant to have, that, that would give us, that would draw us, sustain us, and give us spiritual wealth. Now we have baller status. It's like dollars on dollars on dollars, guys. It's like that's what we have, the riches of Christ available to us right now It's not just something that unfolds later on, on the other side of the grave, right now. This is why Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is here. It's it's present right now. This is the way of blessing. This is the way of flourishing. If you can come to grips with the emptiness of self, you'll taste the sweetness of the fullness of Christ. The hymn "Rock of Ages," there's this line it says, "Nothing in my hands I bring simply to the cross I cling." See, this is the posture of the Christian. This is the posture of a citizen of heaven. My hands are empty. Right? I think we could, we could rewrite this or, or translate or you, know, kind of reimagine this, uh, this, this beatitude and say, "Blessed are those with empty hands." for they will be filled. See, you see your emptiness. You see there's nothing in your hands. Don't despair. Jesus longs to fill them with a lavish heaping, running over, overflowing blessing of him available to you at all times, starting right now. All you must do is come to him. All you must do is turn to him, come up the mountainside, give your ear to him, listen to what he says. And as you do, follow him. See, this this is actually the way of blessing. It's not just coming to Jesus and offering some sort of affirmations and nodding your head with what he has to say. It's a matter of following him. So, church, let us move all of our chips over to Jesus. Like, let us boast in being the most spiritually bankrupt church in the Quad Cities, so that we can boast in the riches of Christ, so that we can be filled. Flourishing are the empty-handed, for Jesus will lavishly fill them with himself. Father, we thank you God, we thank you that we don't have to deny the reality because, man, even this morning, I feel spiritually bankrupt. I feel like there's an emptiness, there's a a depletion of myself, and I don't have to deny that. I don't have to to dress myself up and, and, and sort of doll up or anything like that. I can just say, God, I'm empty. There's nothing good in me. And instead of being driven to despair, the gospel elevates me. I see Jesus offering me a way into the kingdom, not because of my own merit, not because anything that I've accomplished, but because what he has done for me. That he was the one who actually lived the robust life that I couldn't live, the, the robust spiritual life, and he was snuffed out. That his accounts were closed so that I could have a new account in him. So God, I pray that you would more and more make us aware of the riches that are available in Christ to fill our hands with Jesus that there would be nothing else that satisfies nothing else that we turn to God give us more of Jesus we ask this in his beautiful name amen